Hello, everybody. I'm Katerine, and I would like to welcome you to the second episode of the Equality in Business podcast. I am very excited to be here today with Sara Cordivano, a director of diversity and inclusion at Springer Nature and an active voice in topics such as community building and belonging. I would like to welcome you, Sarah. Hi, thank you. So today's episode will be about how we can create an inclusive workspace, both with activities that companies can create themselves and with our own individual behaviors as employees, which is a topic that really interests me. So let's get started. So we have a opening ritual here where our guests uh, are welcomed to complete two sentences. The first one is equality to me means Ta -da -da -da, you can complete and then an ideal workspace deals with ta -da -da -da. Okay, equality to me is a good start. It means that we make sure everyone has equal opportunities to succeed. Uh, but I think the relevant next step is actually equity which is looking at opportunities with historical and cultural context, such as structural racism or environmental injustices to understand that not everyone can succeed with the same resources and support and finding the right steps to address those inequalities and put proper systems in place to create fair access to success. And the other sentence you asked me to finish is um, an ideal workspace deals with blank. So I think an ideal workspace understands the benefits of diversity beyond just business value. Um, and an ideal workspace thinks about the societal value, not just the business value of diversity and inclusion. So if diversity and inclusion in initiatives no longer generate value, uh, would they still be valuable to an organization? That's the question I ask myself. Um, and secondly, you know, a good workplace uh, thinks about the individual behind the roles. So this is increasingly relevant now, you know, amidst this uh, corona times because we can't expect maximum output from everyone and empathy is really more important than ever. So it's really vital to find the right way to support our colleagues. Thank you so much for sharing your view, Sarah. I think it is probably very related to the role you're in right now. So you're a global director of diversity and inclusion at Springer Nature. Could you explain us a little bit what your role is at that job at the moment? Sure. So I recently took over for the global director of DNI at uh, Springer Nature, Jessica. She's currently on parental leave. And essentially, there's a lot of excellent groundwork done on the DNI strategy. Um, and essentially, my responsibility is to carry that forward and further develop the projects related to diversity and inclusion. So I'll talk a little bit more about those as we go forward today. Perfect. Uh, I'm also interested in knowing how you got started in this sort of topics of inclusion and diversity. Was it something that uh, you've, you have always felt interested about? Did this grow over the years with your professional life? How did the process happen for you? So before I worked in HR, I actually worked in tech. Um, and I experienced a lot of the toxic behaviors that happen within the tech industry. And I became involved in community work and actually ran a fellowship program to get students involved in the industry. So uh, when I relocated to Berlin a few years ago, I found, um, I found the first job I could there, which was working on warehouse optimization. But I was really missing this kind of community and like diversity work. So I got involved with, um, with the organization's uh, diversity employee network. And I slowly became more involved in this grassroots work. And through that, um, I actually grew in that role and began to work more on a corporate level on our DNI strategy as a company. So um, this was this was probably the 
the gateway that took me from a technical industry to a more um, yeah DNI DNI role. Uh, and I would like to go in a little bit on the tasks that you do at the moment uh, in your position. So you're, as we discussed, uh, a, a director of diversity and inclusion. And I would like to know what your tasks are and also if there's a difference between inclusion and diversity. And if in some sense, one is more important than, than the other at some point. So this is a really great question because a lot of times the two concepts of diversity and inclusion get sort of pushed together and it becomes difficult to understand how they are different. Um, so diversity refers to the seen and unseen characteristics and experiences, which can be visible or invisible, uh, which define who we are and how we experience the world around us. So this could include gender, race, sexual orientation, disability, cultural background, age, um, actually, and many, many more uh, characteristics. Um, and the important thing to note here is that uh, diversity is not just gender. And a lot of times the conversation gets um, kind of minimized to this, um, this idea that diversity equals gender. So it's important to think about the broad scope of diversity as a concept. And then inclusion is all about creating an environment of respect, connection, community, where all people feel like they are respected and valued. And uh, specifically, inclusion means that all perspectives and contributions are valued and team members really feel empowered to be their authentic self. So, you know, these two definitions together, I think it's good to understand how they interact with each other. So creating an inclusive workplace really paves the way for diversity. And if you focus first on diversity, you may be in the situation where you've put a lot of, um, you know, you have a lot of diverse perspectives together, but you don't have a working environment that invites and respects those those perspectives. So kind of to summarize, you know, if you really want to excel um, and have a diverse, uh, a diverse workforce and a diverse environment, you need to make sure that inclusion is a priority for you. Um, yeah, and you asked a little bit about how these tasks, uh, you know, what type of tasks I work on related to diversity and inclusion. And I think this is a good way to show how these two concepts are different, but related. Um, so on the diversity side, you know, I'm off, I'm working on topics that increase the diversity of the workforce. So this could be looking at leadership levels or in specific areas of the business where there's underrepresentation, and it could include hiring professional development, like mentoring, or looking at your promotion processes and making sure they're not biased. And then inclusion, on the other hand, is like I said, all about creating that inclusive working environment resource groups to form and build communities. Um, it could be around setting policies for inclusion, such as trans inclusion, disability inclusion, or cultural awareness. Um, and one of the most important things around this is to help leaders learn how to role model inclusive behavior. Uh, so I'll talk a about that a little bit later, but I think um, making sure you have role models within your organization that can be um, that can role model this inclusive behavior top down is one of the most important things about inclusion. Thank you for that. Um, you touched a bit on that already, but do you think there's a process that companies in general need to go through to make sure they can create this inclusive workspace? I know you, you gave already a lot of examples, but is there a standard process that could be a, a, a nice way to initiate this process? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's exactly a standard process, but I think it's more of a mindset. 
And I think that mindset starts with the fact that your organization has room for improvement. And um, that is kind of the first step in understanding that this is a journey and that you have some room to grow. So to understand where your room for improvement lies, it's good to have a survey. And that's simply asking your employees where they feel like inclusion is lacking throughout the organization. The next step would be to um, really empower and listen to your employee resource groups. So, you know, if you have employee resource groups, it could be like an LGBT group, a women's network, a disability network, making sure that they have a voice within the organization. So when they see problems happen, they can actually speak up. The next step would be about really taking the feedback to heart. Um, so essentially, when you get feedback around, you know, topics that are places where things aren't very inclusive, it's, it's really taking that feedback to heart um, and using it to implement change. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, role modeling inclusive behavior top down. So essentially giving your leaders the tools and support to be role models, um, because a lot of people look up to them and uh, they need some often they need some guidance and advice on how how to be an inclusive leader. And lastly, you know, inclusion is a journey with no finish line. So there's not an end goal where, OK, you finished the box is checked and now you can move on. So the kind of the last step is to really check back frequently to see how you're doing, survey your employees again, ask them how they're doing, and then use that to, to put new improvements in place. I really like your perspective on it as a journey. So that's very interesting. And I think it's something that we don't see, see that much because we always think that's like a procedure and that we need to follow very strict rules. But Maybe it's more about mindset, as you said, and a little bit about that. I know you worked in Philadelphia and lived in Philadelphia before moving to Berlin, where you are now. Did you notice a big difference in how corporations and even individuals actively try to create this uh, inclusive workspace and promote activities that can do it? And if not, in what ways is it different? Yeah, so this is a great question. And I've actually, you know, I've been thinking about this for a bit and you know, honestly, every country and even every organization has their own culture. Um, and therefore, you know, they each have their own unique approach to DNI. And it's really important to recognize this and not force one strategy or approach on all locations or all companies. And there's a lot of cultural and historical context um, that's really important here and understanding why an organization um, prefers one approach over another. So I don't actually think there's a right way or a wrong way or a better way or a worse way, but understanding the complexity of these differences is really important. So one thing you can do is essentially empower the, the individual business locations um, to adapt a strategy in a way that makes sense for them. So, you know, if you're rolling out a global strategy to, to different local, local businesses, perhaps internationally, you really have to figure out how to adapt that strategy locally. And most importantly is to engage local experts because they understand that cultural context best and essentially empower them to make decisions about what the best way to adapt that strategy will be. I have not, never thought of it that way. Thank you. Um, you. You have a website and you're very active in talking about these topics and spreading awareness. And one of your articles is about the use of pronouns. 
And in your LinkedIn account, we can read in brackets her slash she, which is not very common, at least for me and here in Portugal. Can you elaborate a little bit on why do you think these pronouns are so important and how can we as employees use them to make sure we create a more inclusive workspace in our organizations? Yeah. So this is a great question because I think a lot of people wonder why someone like myself who is cisgendered and cisgendered means, you know, my gender matches what was assigned to me at birth. Why would I proactively share my pronouns on social media or in an email signature? It's probably, it might seem obvious to you um, to refer to me as she, her, but actually about someone removes the freedom they have to define that themselves. So essentially me sharing my pronouns is a small way to create an environment where other people, um, including people who are transgender or gender nonconforming, feel comfortable to share their pronouns as well. It's kind of a subtle signal of an inclusive welcoming space. And the important thing is if you, if someone has shared their pronouns with you, it's important to actually use them consistently. You might make a mistake and you might accidentally use the wrong pronoun at some point. Um, and if that happens, you know, learn from that experience and move on. It's not the end of the world, but, you know, trying to the same way you memorize someone's name, it's important to also memorize the pronouns that they use. And in line with that, I think there are some expressions that may not be the most appropriate to use when our goal is to create this environment that we are talking about, such as, for example, guys, when we say, let's do this like this, mm -hmm. guys, is there any other expression? expressions that you find that may be particularly harmful and how can we replace them because it's something we have been using our whole lives yeah so this is this is a great question and and before i give some examples i want to just talk a little bit about why language is so powerful so you know language is very powerful and it's also very personal so some some words that don't mean anything to one person might be incredibly validating or offensive to someone else So inclusive language um, is all about recognizing that. And inclusive language is free from language that perpetuates stereotypes or negative expectations or limitations. So it can be as simple as thinking about how common phrases perpetuate stereotypes, like saying chairman versus chairperson, or finding the right man for the job, you know, or it can be more complex regarding assumptions that you make in language. So saying something falls on deaf ears, for example, or asking a colleague if he has a wife or girlfriend, and therefore you're already assuming he's a straight person. So, you know, inclusive language can also be about, you know, or avoiding idioms or slang or complex phrasing that makes it more difficult for your audience, uh, especially non-native English speakers, to understand your meaning. meaning. But it's also not about being the language police. So it's not about, you know... Um, like editing everything you say to be the, the most perfect sentence. It's about understanding that language has power, but it can also be exclusionary. So it's really important to kind of start this conversation with your audience and ask them about what language resonates with them, what language they find offensive or ill-fitting, and really take that feedback to heart and use it to kind of evolve your own, your own language. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have a little follow-up question on that. I think most of our listeners are um, business students that will be graduating and will be joining an organization soon. And let's say they realize that their organization has some of these problems. Let's not call it problems, but um, these uses mm -hmm. of language. 
what can he do when they enter to make the situation better, but also not be uh, the language police, as you said, especially as a new beginner? Yeah, this is a this is a great question. And, um, you know, I the first thing I would do if I was in that situation is I would look to the HR department or the communications department to see if there's a policy already existing on language. Um, and if not, it might be worthwhile asking if the HR department or the communication department could develop such a policy, you know, together with the employees. Um, and if that's not the case, you know, one thing you can do, and I, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, being an ally in these situations is really important. So if you hear something, maybe it doesn't offend you personally, but you, you notice that maybe it offends someone else or you notice that it, it's excluding someone else from the conversation, you can kind of step up and say something and it kind of takes the pressure off the person that that affected. Um, so that's like one small way you can kind of speak up without, um, without putting all that burden on that person who's, who is, you know, who's experiencing that, that question themselves or who's, you know, who's, uh, that's a better way to say that. It takes the burden off the person who's the subject of the, of the language to, call it out and be, you know, kind of monitor that behavior. And uh, I think another thing that can help and that you have been mentioning is employee resource groups. And I'm not sure everyone is familiar with that. So I would like you to explain a little bit what they are and what their role is in this process we are discussing. Sure. So um, employee resource groups are a really important part of a corporate structure. And essentially, they're employee identity or experience-based groups that build community. And they're sometimes known as employee networks or affinity groups. And essentially, they are based on community building and they provide support um, and contribute to personal and professional development in the workplace. Um, so examples of employee resource groups are a pride network, a women's network, a disabled employees network, for example. And um, employee resource groups bring a lot of value to the company and to the employees. So they build a sense of community and belonging by connecting people in a social way. And they also encourage interaction between employees. They also empower employees by giving each group a collective voice to speak with decision makers and management. And um, groups are also empowered to assemble and voice, voice concerns as a community. And that can feel a bit more comfortable than voicing concerns as an individual. And um, employee resource groups also support learning and development. So often they have formal and informal leadership opportunities and they create visibility for employees who are active. And um, they also provide a resource for leadership and decision makers regarding staff and community issues, needs and policies. So a good example of this is if you're um, you know, if your company is, is creating a, a policy for transgender inclusion, it's really important to consult the Pride or LGBT network um, on the policy, because that way you get the voice of the community um, inside, that, uh, inside that, that project. So, you know, ERGs really offer the company their expertise and experience to Im improve equality at the company. Um, and they're also, you know, ERGs are a great way to get involved in grassroots diversity initiatives. I, I completely agree. And I think it's a topic that we don't talk very much in the university. So thank you very much for your, your answer. We are now coming to the end of our episode. So to finish strong, uh, I would like to welcome you to give three advices 
for our listeners to implement in their daily lives that can contribute to a more inclusive environment in their organization? Yeah, this is a great question because, you know, it's not easy to recognize what you can do to, to participate in a more inclusive environment. Um, but the first, the first idea I'll mention is allyship, which I mentioned before. Um, but essentially, allyship is um, it's all about speaking up for others who aren't being heard. So um, um, who is not having those needs represented. So this could be, for example, speaking up um, for someone who's not being heard in a meeting. It could be about confronting racist or sexist behavior when you witness it. Um, it's important to make sure that your help is wanted. You know, this is not about being the savior who steps in and always fixes the problem. Um, so it's good to ask whether your help is needed before you, you know, before you start. But it, here's one practical example. So if you get invited to a panel, you can ask the organizers, what's the diversity of the conference or what's the diversity of the panel before you agree? And even if you're, even if you're a man, you can really set the expectation that, you know, I expect there to be diversity on this panel before I agree to, um, you know, whether the, the conference will be creating subtitles or transcripts of the event to make sure that people who are deaf can still, can still enjoy the content. So the second advice I would give is around getting involved in employee resource groups. So as I mentioned before, it's a really great way to get active. Um, you can even start your own employee resource group if there isn't you know, the, the right group for you. Um, and, but I think this is a great way because you, it helps you build a community, it helps you network, and it also helps you kind of push or challenge the organization to be more inclusive. And lastly, take ownership of your own learning journey. So important part of being an advocate and champion of DNI is to take the responsibility to educate yourself and be humble to accept feedback. So you can't really rely on others to educate you. Um, but if you, you know, are listening to a podcast like this um, or you're reading books, joining events and seminars, you really kind of take on that responsibility to educate yourself and then become an amplifier of that knowledge. Well, that was a strong finish, <laughs> like I asked you. Thank you very much for being present today. These kind of initiatives are very important. So in the name of the whole team, I would like to thank you very, very much. And I leave the floor to you and then we finish. Thank you. I really enjoyed this.